Uh, if you have a Bible, open to Psalm chapter 13. We're taking a little bit of a break, uh, actually just a one-week break from our series in the book of Mark. And Tim Mon, who's our lead pastor here, uh, was really gracious enough to give me an opportunity to teach uh, this morning. And, and our topic this morning is one that I have wrestled with, continue to wrestle with, and I think the experience that we're going to uncover in Psalm chapter 13 is actually a kind of a universal experience. So if I put this symbol, this kind of animation up for you, who, who in here, first of all, you, you know what this means? <laughs> yeah, okay. Uh, if, if you don't know what that means, ask your kids. They know what that means. That, that is a, a sign that you'll see online and the internet all the time. So it's, it's buffering, loading, but it ultimately means that you are waiting, right? And a lot of times, if you're like me, you're probably better than me, but if you're like me, you see that and you just think, oh, you're waiting, right? So all you want to do is see some cat play the piano and you got to wait for this to happen, right? <laughs> but waiting, it, it brings up all these emotions, right? So waiting is frustrating. Waiting makes us angry because waiting is difficult. And the reality is here this morning is that everybody is waiting, uh, on something, uh, and all different categories, and on all different levels, but everybody in here is, is waiting. And there's people in here, you're waiting for a job, and you have been waiting for a long time. You're waiting for that email to come through. You're waiting for the phone to ring. Maybe you're just waiting for that deal to close. You're waiting for some kind of breakthrough in your professional life. You're waiting. There's people in here, you could be, you could be waiting for a husband or, or a wife. We don't like to say that out loud because it makes us, uh, you know, sound desperate. But come on. I mean, you're, you're waiting for the person that God is going to bring into your life that you would have for forever. I'm always kind of thinking someone might raise their hand and be like, yeah, that's me. And like across the room be like, me too. And you just <laughs> love connection here in church. There's kids in here and they're, wa they're waiting on their parents to, to work it out. You know, they don't understand. They don't understand, well, how, how come mom and dad, you guys just can't love each other? They're waiting on you. You could be in here and you're waiting for your spouse to come back or you're waiting for a son or a, or a daughter who's left church, left faith, come back. Some of you, you're waiting on a, on a, on a baby. Some of you, you're, you're in the adoption process. A lot of people in our church are in the adoption process. You're waiting for that to finalize and you're working through all the paperwork and all the classes and all the time and all the money. You're You're waiting. Some of you, you're, you're working on some kind of treatment or maybe even a rehab to work, some kind of condition or some kind of struggle or addiction. You're waiting. You're waiting for a breakthrough there. But the point is, is that everybody here, if you're not already, you have been or you will be in a season where you're waiting. And I want to I look at... Um, waiting this morning. And, I, and I'm going to make four observations about our waiting. There's four observations, and then I want to look at three outcomes of our waiting. So four observations on waiting and three outcomes. In Psalm chapter 13, we get a peek into the life of a man named David. So David was a real man, and he wrote a lot of psalms or songs in the scripture. And Psalm chapter 13 is one of those songs that David has written. So let's read that together. Psalm chapter 13, verse 1. How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I take counsel in my soul and have sorrow in my heart all the day? How long shall my enemy be exalted over me? Consider and answer me, O Lord my God. Light up my eyes, lest I sleep the sleep of death. Lest my enemies say I have prevailed over him. Lest my foes rejoice because I am shaken. And then verse 5. 
but I have trusted in your steadfast love, and my heart shall rejoice in your salvation. And I will sing to the Lord because he has dealt bountifully with me. Let's pray and ask God to help us with this this morning. Father God, we love you. God, I thank you for um, just our confession before you and before one another, um, God, this morning. God, that it is good to trust you. Um, God, that even in our wavering, God, you never waver. And yet, God, I know um, that those lyrics are, are difficult for people in this room. They're difficult for me uh, to sing, God, because there are parts of our life that just don't seem to match up with that. And so, I, God, I, I pray that through the power of your spirit and the power of your word this morning, God, that you would just align those things. God, that our, our hearts would match what we've already sung. God, that our hearts would be in tune and in line with what you want for us. Um, God, I always pray for help um, in desperate need of it. God, I pray that you would limit distractions in this room, in my own head, in my own heart. Um, Jesus, this is always about you and always for you. And so, God, I just pray um, that you would find this useful, this time useful. God, give us uh, eyes to see and ears to hear this morning. In your name we pray. Amen. Here's what's happening in the life of this man, David, who writes this song. So David, when he was a teenager, is anointed as king by a prophet named Samuel. And here, um, David is uh, in his late 20s about, in 1 Samuel chapter 26, tells us that Saul, who's the current king, Saul's not such a great guy, Saul is chasing David through the mountains, and the 1 Samuel it says like a partridge in the mountains, like a bird through the mountains, and so David is on the run from, from Saul, and David is at this moment, as he goes from cave to cave, being hunted by Saul, that he just says, God, how long? Have you, have you totally forgot about me? And in fact, this, this idea in, in, chap, in verse 2, the Hebrew idea is like this adding one thought to another. It's kind of adding sorrow on sorrow and, and, or, or trying to make plan after plan to where you could get out of something, but it all, always fails and it just makes you more and more desperate. And that's what was happening here with David. At night, he would scheme, he would make his plans during the day, the, those plans would, would fail, and it would just cause him more grief. And so David's on this like, emotional roller coaster. He feels like he's a rat in a maze that has no exit. And so David is crying out to God here. David was anointed to be king, but yet Saul is still king. David is running through caves. Saul is sitting on the throne in, in the palace. And it seems so unfair because Saul's the bad guy. Saul's not the one who's, who's chasing after God. That's, that's David. David is, is the one who wants to live the life that God has called him to live. And, and, in fact, Saul is trying to kill David. And at one point, David spared Saul's life. And so he says, God, how long? And, and if you've never been there before, sooner or later you will be. You'll be in a place of an extended time of trial. You'll be waiting for some type of resolution. And you'll call out to God and it'll feel like he doesn't answer. You try to figure it out on your own and all your plans, they just seem to fail. And the, and the harder you work to try to figure it out, the, the more difficult it seems to be to get out of it. And this is where David is. And this is where many of us are this morning. So we're going to look at some observations on our waiting the first thing that we see about waiting, the first observation on waiting, is that waiting is solitary. Waiting is solitary. Now, what do I mean by waiting? Because the word is not specifically used here in Psalm 13, but the idea of waiting is, is intimated in the repeated words, how long, O Lord? 
Waiting, this is, this is waiting. Waiting is seeking God's help, seeking God's answer, seeking God's comfort, seeking God's hand and provision in the midst of struggle or loss or need. That's the waiting that we're talking about here. Waiting is, uh, and for God, so often is a very solitary reality. It's, it's what David is expressing here in verse 1-2. It feels very lonely. And, and for some of you, you come because you're in a time of waiting here. And even though you're in a crowd of people, it still feels very lonely. It feels very solitary to you. You, 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 you try to share the struggle and people care for you and they care about you. But it just it doesn't feel like it's something that you can share. It feels like it's something that's only unique to you, that nobody else gets it. And, and, and there are areas of our life that, that where our burdens are very solitary, very lonely, and oftentimes feel very helpless. But here's the point. There is a time to tur- turn to others. There's a time to seek friendship in our waiting, for sure. But there's also a design to the solitude in our waiting because solitude and, and waiting is often God's way of drawing his children close to his heart. In Psalm chapter 25, verse 16, there's a, there's a phrase there the psalmist makes. And he says, Lord, have mercy on me, be gracious, because I'm, because I'm lonely and afflicted. And the word for lonely there is this Hebrew idea, the Hebrew word for only child. And in, in the Old Testament, in the ancient day, if you were an only child, it did mean that you were alone. You had no brothers or sisters to play with. But what it also meant is that you were the singular focus of your father's affection. Your father had no other place to put his focus or his uh, affection. And so it's this unique place of singular love in the eyes of your father. And so what God wants to do in those times of solitary waiting, God wants to do is to draw you into his unique and one and only love for you in your waiting. It's God calling you to find your hope, your salvation, your joy in him and in him alone. A lot of times what waiting in our solitude does is it reveals our idols. And the idols are the things that we go to to fill the, the, the hole or kind of release the, the pain or even distract. Idols are the place where, uh, that gets all of our time or our attention. Or it gets our heart, gets our mind, gets our resources instead of God. We go to those things quickly, and a lot of times our time of waiting in solitary exposes those, team, those things. Because what God is trying to do is he's trying to use that pain, he's trying to use that solitude, use that need, use the lack of resources to show you how much you need him and how much he alone can satisfy you. In fact, through the scriptures, we see God use these places of solitude. So uh, Moses is, is, is in the, the Midian wilderness when God come, comes to him. In 1 Kings chapter 19, after Elijah has defeated the prophets of Baal, so Elijah has this major victory, but yeah, the, the very next place that we see him go to is the wilderness underneath the broom tree. And then maybe the most famous, as far as being solitary, is Jesus alone in the garden. Here he is at his time of greatest need, and his closest followers can't even stay awake with him. And all of these places and all of these times are designed by God for his glory and their ultimate joy. The Apostle Paul writes to the church at Corinth in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 9, trying to encourage them, and he says, we felt that we had received the sentence of death. We felt like this was it. We felt like we were all alone. But that was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. Amen. So the first thing that we see is that waiting is solitary. The second observation that we make about waiting is that waiting is wondering. Waiting is wondering. We see that in the cry of David. He says, God, how long? 
How long? What's, what's going on? What's, what is the cry in your life? What's this cry of wondering in your time of waiting? God, how long? God, God when, when am I ever going to find a job? How am I going to pay for this? Is this a, is this a sickness that's going to take my life? When is this battle going to be over? When is this tension going to be resolved? When is this struggle going to be over? When are they going to come home? When are they going to come back? God, how long? And, and, and you, maybe like David, you've gone from the heights of hope to the depths of despair so many times you just feel like, I just can't take it. I can't take another day of it. And then it seems that those who could care less about God, those who, who, who don't want to follow in, in God's prescribed way of living, they seem to be living in the palace and you're going from cave to cave. There's two things to remember in the wondering. If you're, if you're wondering and you're waiting, there's two things that you need to remember. The first thing is very important. It's this. God has not forgotten about you. If you're wondering and you're waiting, remember God has not forgotten about you. The prophet Isaiah in chapter 49, verse 14, 15 says this, but Zion said, the Lord has forsaken me and the Lord has forgotten me. God answers, says, can a woman forget her nursing child? And have no compassion on the son of her womb. They said, even these may forget, but I will not forget you. And you may suffer for years, but God never forgets his children. In Hebrews chapter 13, 5, he promises, he says, I will never desert you and I will never forsake you. God has not forgotten about you. You say, yeah, man, but it sure seems like he does. And we see that in the scripture. I mean, we're seeing that with David right now. You look at the life of Joseph. You look at the apostle Paul sometimes. And it just seems like that God is off the job. That, that God, don't you know what's happening to these people? These are your servants, your people. Don't you know what's happening to them? And God says, yeah, I know what's happening to them in that moment. I know what's happening to you in your waiting. God is building maturity and growing their confidence in him or growing their faith so that they would learn to trust him. It takes years to build the godly character qualities that are needed to be an effective servant of the Lord, which takes us to our second point. So the first point that you need to remember in your wondering is that God has not forgotten about you. The second point to remember in your wondering is that there's no such thing as instant godliness. There's no such thing as instant godliness. And, and, and with, this is so tough for us because we have instant everything in our society, Right? We, we live in a culture of, of immediate results, instant satisfaction, instant information. If you're at lunch with somebody or at coffee with somebody and they say something, you're like, I don't know if that's true. What do you do? You take out your phone and you, you Google it, right? Google has ruined more stories and illustrations for me than anything else. <laughs> I'll, be, I'll be at 710, I'll say something, and someone's like, that's not true. And by someone, I mean my wife. And then they'll Google it and be like, eh, you were kind of off, right? But that's, 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 that's how it is. We live in this instant uh, kind of culture. We embrace this illusion of human omniscience. And, and we think because answers are so immediate and because everything else is so immediate, we think that God should be like that too. And so we treat our relationship with him. But here's the thing. God is not Google. David is anointed as king in his, his teens. He's a teenager. He, he, has a, he has a strong faith. He has this major victory over the, the giant Goliath. If you've never heard that story, read your Bible. It's incredible, right? And, 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 and then he goes and he turns 21. He's still not king. 22, he's still not king. 25, he's still not king. 26, he's still not king. 27, 28, 29, still not king. He's 30 years old. He's, he's anointed as a teenager. And for years, he still doesn't realize what God had said he's going to be. 
And through all those years of running from Saul and living in caves, David is learning an important lesson. He's learning to wait on God. And God is developing his man. And so if you're here today and you feel like I am just absolutely shut up and shut down in my circumstances and you've racked your brain trying to figure out a way out and nothing seems to work, just hold on because God is working his perfect work in you. He has not forgotten about you. Learn to wait on him. The the life, and we, we talk about this here all the time, The Christian life is a life of submitting to God's sovereignty, loving, caring, perfect, sovereign will, and patiently seeking God's will and not our own. And so this this brings freedom to us, Christian. This brings freedom to us, church, because we remember that God is in charge. And and some of you, you could leave, and that's the only thing that maybe you catch today, and that's fine. You just need to remember that God is in charge, not a disease, not a politician, not your employer, not an economy. God is still sovereign. Even in the midst of your waiting, even in the midst of your loneliness, even in the midst of your wondering, God is still sovereign. God is still in charge. This is what it is to wait on uh, uh, God. This is what it is to have your faith grow up. When we read in Hebrews chapter 11, this was kind of like the hall of fame of faith of people of the scriptures. Over and over again, we read these phrases that they had faith, not knowing, not receiving, not understanding, or looking forward. But their life was a life of active trust, bold reliance on God, and they not really comprehending or understanding everything that was going on. There's also, and this is always a kicker to me, in Hebrews chapter 11, there's also a phrase that says, and all of these, though commended for their faith, commended for their confidence in God, did not receive what was promised. So what does that mean about these people in the hall of fame of faith? That they went to their grave waiting. Your growing up in God is not instantaneous. Waiting is solitary. Waiting is wondering. And then the third thing we see is that waiting is working, not wasted. Your waiting is not wasted because it's working. And and, and 2 Corinthians chapter 4, you can can turn there or we'll, we'll put the text up on the screen. But Paul is talking to the church at Corinth and trying to encourage them. And this is what he says in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 6. He says this, For God, who said, Let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. And verse 7 says, We have this treasure, and that's the treasure. The treasure is the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. And we have that treasure in jars of clay, talking about us, to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed. We are perplexed, but not driven to despair. We're persecuted, not forsaken. We are struck down, not destroyed. We're always carrying in the body the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may be manifested or made known in our bodies. Let's go down to verse 16. I love this. So we do not lose heart. Though our, our, our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day for this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. And as we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, temporary. 
but the things that are unseen are eternal. Paul says, we do not lose heart. Because God lifts our purpose up to a higher place than just having the easiest journey possible. He says, set your eyes on what's coming, not just what is here and now. And he said, it's light and momentary affliction compared to God's eternal promise. Eternity, heaven, God's promise, God's reward, it has to inform your waiting. It has to inform your hurting. It has to inform your tears. It has to inform the pain that you're pressing through right now. And it can because it's working. The scripture tells us it achieves for us. It produces a glory that far outweighs our waiting. Okay, so how? How is it working? What is it producing? What are the outcomes of our waiting? So three outcomes, three outcomes of our waiting. The first thing that we see is that our waiting produces proven character and faithfulness. Our waiting produces proven character and faithfulness. James chapter 1, verse 2 and 4, count it all joy, my brothers. When you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Later on in that chapter, James says this, Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial, for when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. God's priority is not to make our lives easier. God is not primarily interested in making our lives easier. He's primarily interested in making our lives matter. Now, it's not to say that he isn't interested in all in making our lives easier because he does. He provides he encourages, he heals, he opens doors, he makes a way where there seems to be no way, he captivates us with his beauty, but his primary objective is to make your life meaningful today. The, the tragedy of life is not to have a hard life. The tragedy is to have a meaningless life. That's a sad life. Uh, in September, it'll be eight years that my wife and I have moved out here and been a part of this church. We moved up from, um, from Florida. My, all of our family lives on the, on the southeast, east coast. And, and about when we moved out here, um, my mom, who's still back at home, was in, a, was in a bad car accident. Somebody ran a red light, T-bone her. And so when that happened, it led to a back surgery, which failed. So that led to another back surgery, which failed. So that led to two more back surgeries. And now she just kind of has chronic back pain, still can't really get it figured out. A little bit while after that, um, during the economic downturn, my dad lost his company, a company he had had for years. They lost their house, they filed for bankruptcy. A little over a year ago, my mom was diagnosed with cancer. It's a hard life, but it's not a sad life. Because all through that, when I talk to them, they say, God is good. God is faithful. God is good. God is faithful. Now my parents and their story, that's not the point. But what they say is the point. What they say, clinging to the faithfulness and the goodness of God, that's the point. And church, our prayers have to shift from asking for an easier life to having a life that matters, to have a life where we're, we're growing, we're maturing in our faith. 
And our faith, our confidence has grown. It's found in the waiting. It grows in the waiting. It grows in the trial. And in the waiting, I discover something very important. In my time of waiting, I discover that Jesus means something to me. Because on the easy road, I don't really know who's with me. Because on the easy road, everybody's with me. But on the difficult roads, I, I really know who's with me then. The goal of your life is not to have all your tension resolved. It is to be fully formed in Christ. The goal of your life as a follower of Jesus is to have your heart shaped, molded, to, so, so that you look like, respond like, serve like, and ultimately love like Jesus. The, the Bible tells us that our faith is more precious than gold. Christian, is your faith that precious to you? Is your confidence in God that precious to you? So waiting brings our, our character. The second thing is that waiting produces a true confidence in the provision of God. This is one of the outcomes of waiting, that it produces true confidence in the provision of God. Because our waiting teaches us that God really is enough. I remember when we were growing up, my dad, was, he, my dad worked in construction, mostly concrete and stuff, and had his own business. And um, I remember, especially early on, when he was just getting started, it was super, super tough. And I remember, um, you know, times when, when we didn't really know where the next meal was coming from. I remember, um, you know, like times when my dad would come home from work, and he worked super hard all day long, and only to come home, and the lights had been shut off because we didn't have money for the power bill. And I remember the response that my parents had every time something like that went down. Okay, let's pray. Let's pray. We've done everything we can. We worked hard. We're trying. We're, we're trying to do what we can, but it's just not happening. So let's pray. And I remember um, people who would drop off bags of clothes for us at our front door and food and, um, you know, like money in the mailbox and all that stuff. And, I, and, and the point is not so much... Um, that God provided for our physical needs. He's so good to do that. But that he provided a reality for our family, a reality that we still walk in today that God is enough. We might not always have enough, what we feel like is enough, but God will always be enough. And in our times of waiting, it's not designed for us to prove to God that we're enough. This is really important. This is going to help, I think, because this helps me. Your waiting is not designed for you to prove to God that you are enough. It's for God to prove to you that he is enough. The mission of God in this world is not about you proving to God who you are. It's about him proving to the world who he is. God already knows who you are. The Psalms say he's mindful of our frame. He knows we're dust. God already knows who we are. But we've got this kind of false religion where we try to convince God and we try to convince everybody around us how strong we are in the trial. Hey, I know you're going through a tough time. How's it going? Well, you know, I'm just counting it all joy, brother. And I get it. And I get, listen, that's the Bible. That's what the Bible says to do. But sometimes that's not how you feel. Because we're trying to convince everybody around us just how strong we are. But God says clearly to us, it's not about your strength. It's not about your might. It's not about your power. It's about my spirit in you. God is not looking for you to prove anything to him. He leads us into the wilderness so that he can prove who he is. And so that we can come out of the wilderness and tell the story of how good he is and how great he is. 
Another thing this psalm teaches us is that it's okay to be real in the waiting. Verse 1 and 2 are very evident that it says, God, how long? How long? What David is expressing here, he's expressing a feeling of indifference and anguish. Have you ever felt like that in your waiting? I love that the scripture has sections like this in it. And I love that the, the, the scripture has real people who feel real things and real stories. God, how long? How long is my enemy going to trample over me? Am I going to die during this? How, how, how long? First Corinthians 4, 8, we just read it. That sometimes you get knocked down. That happens. But you're not destroyed. It's okay to say, I'm perplexed. It's okay to say, God, I don't get it. I'm confused. Are you still there? God, I'm perplexed. I think for God to be real to you, then in your times of waiting, you have to be real with him. And I think the scripture gives us room to do that. Admitting that you're weak is not defeat. The Bible says you're a fragile clay pot. If you want to know how fragile a clay pot is, invite my three little kids over to your house. They'll show you how (laughs) fragile your stuff is. Being weak is not failure. Failure is when you say, I'm weak, period, end of sentence. Because what we should say is, I am weak, but God, you are very, very strong. I'm perplexed, but you are God. That's real faith. I, I, I don't get it, but I know you're God, and I believe that you got me, and I believe that you got this, and I believe that somehow you're working in this waiting, somehow you're working in this trial, and I'm confused, and I feel like I've been knocked down, but you're God, and you are good. And you were faithful. The last thing, the outcome of our waiting, the last thing that we see that waiting produces, it produces a powerful, personal ministry to a broken world. Our waiting produces a, a testimony to a broken world. And we celebrate the pressure. We're not masochistic, we're not weird, right? But we celebrate the pressure because we know that through it, people might know Jesus. And I love these stories of faith you hear of missionaries who are martyr, martyred, And then their spouse goes back to that particular people group and says, you know what, we forgive you because we're forgiven in Christ Jesus and we want you to know that message. And the message of you murdering my spouse is not the story. The story is that there was one who was murdered on our behalf so that we could be put back together with him and with you. There's stories of the cancer patient, the the Jesus-following cancer patient who shares the good news of Jesus while they're getting chemo treatment to the other cancer patients in the room. There's the story of the student who's mocked or ridiculed, made fun of, bullied in school for their belief, but yet they turn around and they show the love of Jesus to the very ones who mock them, who, who ridicule them. Because while we're waiting, God is working, and the watching world needs to hear the story of his strength that's made known or seen in our weakness. And the story is not that I am strong, but the story is that he is strong, and I am his. So we see that our waiting is working. It's not wasted. Last observation, quickly, the last observation on waiting is that waiting is worship. Waiting is worship. Look at verse 5 and 6 in in Psalm chapter 13. But I've trusted in your steadfast love. And my heart will rejoice in your salvation. And I will sing to the Lord because he has dealt bountifully with me. 
This psalm we know was written by David for the choir master to be sung in corporate worship. So this is a, this is a church song. It's a psalm about the struggle of waiting intended purposefully to be sung in worship. So waiting is worship and worship is waiting. Now David, as he writes verse 5 and 6, he's not yet been delivered, but he trusts in the loving kindness, the NIV calls it the unfailing love of God, and a calm assurance kind of comes over him. We see that in the text. His heart is filled with joy. He thinks of deliverance, which God is going to ultimately bring about. So by faith, David counts God's future deliverance as past. as something that's already happening. He says, I will sing to the Lord because he has dealt bountifully with me. It's important to note that David's circumstances, David's situation had not changed from the start of the psalm. But when he felt confused, when he felt depressed, when he felt forsaken and forgotten by God. And David is still hiding in the cave and Saul is still in the throne room. But, but here's what changed. David's focus. He went from focusing on himself and his problems at the start of the song, and David shifts his thoughts to the loyal love of God and, and God's salvation. And, and that shift in focus, it moves him from confusion and depression to joy and praise and worship. And it doesn't happen accidentally either. There's a, that, that phrase, but I, in verse 5, is emphatic in the Hebrew. It points to David's deliberate choice to rely on God's loyal love. And here's what David does that we need to do, that I need to do. He chooses to interpret his circumstances by God's love rather than to interpret God's love by his circumstances. He, he looks at his circumstances through the lens of God's love instead of God's love through the lens of his circumstances. And that's how he moves to worship. It's our tendency to think that waiting leads to worship, like worship is something that happens after our waiting is already done. And that is true in the ultimate sense. One day in, in, in heaven, when, when, when God and the resolution of all things under heaven. But, but, but for now, it's not that waiting leads to worship. Our waiting is worship. There's worship in the waiting. Our, our, our faith is the ground of our salvation. Our hope is the goal of our salvation. We're saved by faith in Christ, but we're being saved, we're being transformed by hope in Christ and in his return, in his rule, in his reward. So waiting is an opportunity for the hope in the life of the Christian. John Bunyan, the author, not the guy with the big blue ox, says this, faith looks to Christ as dead, buried, and risen, but hope looks for his second coming. Faith looks to him for justification, hope looks to him for glory. Faith fights for doctrine, hope fights for reward. Faith fights for what is in the Bible, hope fights for what awaits us in heaven. But until then, we need to remember that here and now, waiting does not lead to worship, waiting is worship. So church here, as we close, are you afflicted and perplexed? Cry out to God. That's worship. Are you in need of joy? Sing to God. Lift your voice to him. That, that, that's worship. Are you in need of answers? Ask God. Get on your knees. Ask him. Plead to him. That's worship. Are you weighed down by sin, addiction, struggle, your constant and consistent rebellion? Confess it and fill your heart with songs of grace and forgiveness. Don't wait to worship in your waiting. Let your waiting, let your longing, let your seeking, let your needing, let your searching, let it be worship. Let's pray that God would make us that people. God, we love you. And um, God, as I talk about this, um, God, it reveals 
um, just such a great chasm even in my own life because I think of my own impatience in the waiting. I think about my own frustration, um, God, my own depression in the waiting. And so, God, I thank you that there are psalms like Psalm 13 and there's men like David, God, who um, have the freedom to talk to you and, um, God, just express the things that they're feeling. But, God, there's also moments like verses 5 and 6, God, where we can recall and, God, lean into and claim um, the promises, God, that you are steadfast in your love. That, God, we fail constantly and we wander and we waver, but God, you uh, never fail. God, you never leave us. You never forsake us. And so, God, we, um, we have nothing to cling to but that. But, God, it's our greatest joy to confess that. God, I pray for the people in this room who right now, God, they feel like they're waiting and, and they're all alone. God, they're wondering and they're waiting. God, they feel like their waiting is wasted, not working. And God, they feel like worship is the furthest thing from them. God, I pray for freedom for them. God, I pray that they would know you and that you're the God who does immeasurably more. God, we love you and it's in your name we pray. Amen.